to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 25. Last week, we took on the daunting task of covering what the uh, book of Isaiah is known as the section of the oracles. It stretches from chapter 13 to the end of 35. Last week, I described that section of this book of Isaiah as a great Sahara Desert-sized judgment passage. But right in the middle, today, we are going to cover this oasis of grace that we find in chapters 25 through 27. We're primarily going to focus on 25 and a little bit of 27 today, and we'll cover the rest in the following week. Here we see that the Lord is foretelling the end of all things in chapter, at the end of chapter 24. So we need to get a little context before we get to chapter 25. Before we step into our text today, we need to understand why is it even here? How is it that this arrives at this location? In order to understand that, let's see the beginning of chapter 24, which says, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. This is where God has extended his promise of judgment out from the boundaries of all these localized nations to the ends of the globe. Here we see the Lord foretelling that everything will be destroyed. Chapter 24, in its fullness, explains the explanations of the wrath of God that will fall on the enemies of God. However, it also speaks of the glorious way that God is going to draw people out of this world to be with him in perfect peace. The imagery of their ascent is found in chapter 24, verses 14 through 16, which says, They lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one, which of course is Jesus himself. As you read to the end of the chapter, what you will see in chapter 24 is the people from the far east and the people from the far west and everywhere in between are going to be gathered together and make their way to this place called Mount Zion where they are going to worship the Lord. That is the context for what we are seeing in chapters 25 through 27. Let's just be sure, first of all, that we are all on the same page regarding this place, Zion. Zion is a very significant thing in the Bible, particularly in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah. However, the word Zion is not always used in the same way in all places. The term Zion always is used as a way to describe the place where God's presence dwells. In history, that localized place was the physical mountain of Jerusalem. And God chose to dwell in that place in a unique way. In specific, we see that in the temple, he was isolating himself to this place called the Holy of Holies, also known in Latin as the Sanctum Sanctorum. And when the people of God would approach Jerusalem, they would sing songs called the Psalms of Ascent. We find that cataloged in our Bibles in the book of Psalms, chapter 120 through 133. These were songs that were to be easy to memorize. They were sung as they were marching up from the Kidron Valley up into the Temple Mount as they were going nearer to the presence of God to worship Him in that temple. However, there is no temple at this time. In the present, there is no location where the presence of God dwells like it did then. Since the time of Christ, the temple has been void of purpose. After the resurrection, every time somebody sacrificed an animal in that place, it was an abomination to God because that had been replaced with the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. The presence of God does not dwell any longer in a box or in buildings. He dwells in the hearts of his people. So in this present age, when the church, 
when the word Zion is used, it is used to reference the church, not the building. We don't come to worship the Lord in a physical building. The church gathered is the place that is occasionally called Zion. Whenever the people of God get together, what do we do? One of the things that we do is we sing. Well, why do we do that? For the same reason that they did, to celebrate and worship the Lord and set our hearts and minds on Him as we ascend to the throne to worship Him and see Him as He is. Wherever the people of God are gathered, we sing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, speaks about those who are saved, and it tells us that we have come to Mount Zion. It is past tense. If we are in Christ, it says, we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Physical Jerusalem, that city was Zion in the past. The church is Zion in the present. But the Bible also speaks about Zion as it will be in the future. Zion is the place where God dwells in fullness, having conquered his enemies and having saved his children. Now, it's important to understand that Isaiah uses terminology that we use in ways that we don't use them. For example, he uses the word heaven 34 times in this book. But never once is he referring to heaven as we use the term heaven, as the eternal dwelling place where we will be with God forever. Rather, he always uses it to speak of the sky, and he compares it often in partnership with the earth. For example, when he says, the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool, he is not saying that that heavenly dwelling is his home. He's speaking there of the sky and contrasting it with the earth. Heaven, as we are using it now, is the way he uses the word Zion. So sometimes he's speaking about present Israel. Sometimes he's speaking about future church, in his case, or our present. And sometimes he's speaking about the ultimate fulfillment of Zion, heaven itself. So when we arrive at our text this morning, what we are examining are songs that we are to sing now in the present, and we will sing in the future as we ascend to the throne of grace. These three chapters contain three songs, three hymns of praise that I find just as potent and just as delightful to the soul as any of the songs that are found in the book of Psalms. So this week and next, we are going to set our attention on these three Psalms of Isaiah. Today, we're going to cover the first one and a little bit of the third, and next week, we will come back and focus our attention mainly on chapter 26. This week, our desire is to see where we can find hope in this chapter. This chapter, chapter 25, is filled with hope. Now, if you have just tuned me out for the last five minutes and you've just been reading through chapter 25 and just setting your focus directly on the text, you may have noticed that the word hope is not used in that chapter, not even one time. And if that is the case, if you are looking around and trying to find a reference to hope, you will not find it there. However, what we are seeing displayed in these chapters is nothing less than a perfect picture of God-centered hope in the Lord. What is hope? What is hope? What does it mean to have hope for something to take place? We use hope in a lot of ways. Uh, sometimes we use it to speak about weak desires that we have for the future, and I really hope that Target's still open by the time I get there, right? We hope for weak things. Sometimes we have hope for strong things. I really hope that my child continues on the path of righteousness, that my child pursues the Lord, that my child gets saved. We have hope that these things will happen. Sometimes we use the word hope to speak about things that are so far out of the range of possibilities that we, we don't expect them to ever take place. We don't believe they will happen, but we say, I hope it happens. I really hope the Mets win the World Series. 
You know it won't happen. You know it will never take place again. You know that it is not possible, but you say, I hope. The last game that was ever played at Shea Stadium, I remember getting in and watching them lose, and then walking out, and next to me there was a family, a father with two boys, and I remember one of the boys saying, don't worry, Dad, we'll get him next year. And I, I looked at my friend, Ed, and just smirked. I said, no, he won't. No, he won't. But he had hope. He hoped that it would happen, right? That's the way that we use hope. We say hope as an interchangeable word with the idea of a dream or a wish. But that's not how the Bible ever uses the word hope. Rather, hope is a settled confidence that God will carry out his promises. We use the word to describe a desired outcome that is uncertain. But the Bible uses the word hope to describe a confidence in the future that is certain. In the time that remains, our focus on is going to be on these three very basic principles of hope that operate as a foundation for why we have hope that we see in this chapter. First, that God is present with his people. Secondly, that God will reward his people. And finally, that God will vindicate his people. We begin by seeing that God is present with his people. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 1 says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. Isaiah is crying out to the Lord here that you are mine. You are my God. Now, it's a very common thing in the ancient world and even parts of the world today when you get to know somebody who is a stranger to ask them the question, who is your God? What God do you serve? For example, in the Roman Empire, most people dedicated themselves to one temple and one deity where they would sacrifice and where they would give offerings. Who is your God? My God is Hermes. My God is Zeus. My God is Apollos. My God is Minerva. I have my God. Who is your God? Here, Isaiah is declaring, you are my God. Isaiah doesn't just declare that God is God, that he is the only God, that he is the true God. He says, you are my God. There's a question that's often discussed by believers. I think it's a fun conversation to have. Um, It's one where Every time we we study the book of 1 Samuel, people ask the question, was Saul a saved man? Was Saul a Christian? And I think the answer to that is certainly no. But as you read the beginning of his life, it seems like he started out in a good direction. But what happens to him? We see that he disobeys. We see that he does not repent. We see that he seeks counsel from a witch. We see that he tried to kill David, even though he knows he's the Lord's anointed. We know that he was oppressed by an evil spirit that was sent from God to distress him. All of these are indicators that this man was not regenerate. But I find there to be something subtle, but much more telling about his state in relation to the Lord. There's a subtle shift in Saul's language toward the later parts of his reign. Consider 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 15. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Do you see what he says to Samuel? He is the Lord your God. And he stops talking about God as the Lord, and he doesn't call him my God. He says, that's the Lord your God, the God that you talk to, the God that you worship, Samuel. He is not Saul's God. Saul did not see the Lord to be his own. You need to understand that knowing about God is worthless. Knowing about God has no value for you if you don't really know him. You can memorize every verse in the entire Bible and it will do no good to you if you don't know God. It will only stand as judgment against you and condemnation if you don't know God, if you have not been redeemed by him, if you do not love him. He must be your God. 
Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 2.12. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Do you see what he is saying here? Being without God is inextricably linked to being without hope. Without God, you have no hope. With God, you have hope. Without God, you have none. So if you're here as an unbeliever, please know that every other pursuit of hope that you seek is simply going to be like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. It does nothing for you. But not only do we have hope in the Lord because of who he is, but also because of his proven track record, because of what he has done. Look at what he says in the rest of verse 1. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. The Lord has never been late. The Lord has never forgotten a promise. He has never had things get out of his control. He is always weaving together his great tapestry of this timeline that we call earth. He has formed all of these plans before time even began. Verse two, he says, for you have made the city a heap the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. This seems like an abrupt turn, right? He goes from declaring the greatness of the Lord and saying how he will exalt him for all of his wondrous works. And then he says, because you destroy cities and you wipe them out and make them desolate, make them nothing. This is probably a bizarre, you know, course to take here for Isaiah, except for the fact that he's getting out, God is going to carry out his promises. He has just spent the last several chapters declaring nation after nation after nation will be destroyed. And he says, when this happens, it will be cause to show that you do carry out all of your promises. You never forget. You never fail to carry out what you say you will do. In verse four, he says, for you have been a stronghold to the poor. I want to pause for a moment. There's some confusion that I think has been Uh, brought out in recent days. For example, uh, I see a lot of people posting uh, on Facebook, blessed are the poor, and then they will describe the poverty of people who don't have jobs or who live on the street or who have less than others. That is not what the Bible is speaking about when it speaks about the poor. He is speaking, like Jesus said, the poor in spirit. He's speaking of those who are treated poorly for their faith. In this case, he is not speaking about poverty in that sense. He says, you are a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter for the storm and a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Here he is displaying the remnant as they are being attacked by all of those in the world. How many of you guys lost power this week during the storm, during the hurricane? That's a lot. I mean, in the first service, it was more than half. Here, I would say it's at least two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the people lost power during this storm. There was a lot of wires down. I heard that over 420,000 houses lost power on Long Island between Nassau and Suffolk counties combined. That's a lot of people losing power. Now, if you were awake during that storm, you would have heard it. If you looked outside your door, you would have seen the effects of it. The storm was radically powerful in the way that it affected our trees, in the way that it affected our power lines. There's a tree still laying on a power line in my neighbor's backyard. It caught on fire the other day. Crazy things. I'm thankful that during that storm, I had a place to go. 
that I had a house, that I had a roof over my head where I didn't have to worry about the driving winds or the pouring rain. I am thankful that I was able to get in and be protected. What I want you to see here in this text is he is declaring that the Lord is this house. He is the stronghold. He is the place of refuge. When we were inside for the storm, my neighbor, his tree began breaking apart and flying like javelins across the yard. In fact, there is one big tree section that fell off and went right through the middle of his driveway and stuck through the blacktop into the dirt and was standing there, standing straight up like a tree would normally stand. This was powerful. I am thankful that I was not standing there exposed. Christ is our shelter and our protection. He is our place to hide. He also promises that he is going to be our safety from the sun and from the elements. I can't live in the desert. I can't do it. I don't like the desert. Ashley grew up in the desert in Prineville, Oregon. She actually grew up in a, in a caldera. If you don't know what that is, you know the picture of a volcano. It goes like this, and then in the middle it goes like this. That indention, that is a caldera. That is where my wife grew up, in a volcano. It was dormant, but it's a desert place where there is no moisture in the air, and every morning when I am there and I wake up, I feel like I am a cactus. I feel like every ounce of moisture in every cell of my body has been eliminated, and no matter how much water or Gatorade I consume, I cannot ever feel like I am back to normal until I get back to the humidity, which I love. I cannot stand it. But one of the things to note when you are in a place that is desert like this is that there is a radical shift in temperature when you are in the sunlight and then when a cloud comes over the sun. The reason for that is the moisture in the air collects heat. So when we're in this humid temperature and a cloud comes by, the temperature doesn't change much, maybe a degree or two. But in this Middle Eastern land that is where Isaiah lives, it is much hotter than the caldera where my wife grew up, and it is much more extreme in the sunlight. And as I understand it, the temperatures regularly get to near 120. And when a cloud comes between you and that sun, the temperature decrease is rapidly, within an instant, about 30 degrees different. Can you imagine the radical shift of feeling like you were about to die because of the scorching heat. And then the Lord says, I am your shelter and your shade in the heat of the day. I come between you and that scorching sun. He is referring to himself as our go-between. It's important for us to see that the Lord has promised us to be our comfort. And listen, what I am saying right now is not just mere platitudes. I needed to study these words this week. I needed this deeply in my soul because I had allowed my heart to begin getting distracted and dwelling on the events that are taking place in our world. And though I didn't immediately recognize it, I was becoming deeply unsettled. And as I set my heart on the Lord, he drew me out of that blazing sun and into shade for my soul. And I think you need that as well. Church, if our hope is in anything that this world can provide, then your hope can be shaken. If your ship doesn't come in, if your investments go belly up, if a pandemic hits and you're job cease to exist. If a hurricane comes, your house could be flooded. It could be destroyed. Your children might dishonor you or dis disobey you. In fact, mine do all the time. Your body will eventually fail you. Your country will continue its path towards self-destruction. There is no hope to be found in these things. And if you hit your wagon to them, you will be sorely disappointed. But if you know that God is present with you and he is in you, then no weapon formed against you will prosper. When temptation arises and you feel the pressure to 
to succumb to the desires of the flesh or the desires of the world around you or of the will of the devil, and you feel that pull towards those things that you know are wrong, when you do that on your own, you fall, you fail, you cannot stand. But when you know that the arm of Christ is lovingly wrapped around you and that he is with you and that he is carrying you forward, then it is that you can stand firm. Your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It is grounded in the finished work of Christ. But notice that Jesus doesn't just die for you and then leave you alone. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He has promised that he will be with you, and he sent the Spirit to dwell within you, and he intercedes for you, and has affection for you, and he cares for you. You are not alone, and it is a cause for your deepest hope. You can be settled on the fact that Christ has given himself, not just for you at the cross, but to be with you now and forever. That because of the cross, he will never leave you. If you're honest with yourself, then you know that you need hope to live. When your life gets a bit uncomfortable, which I'm assuming for most of us is true in this year, that's when you probably search for a course of action that is going to make you feel stable. But searching in this world for hope is kind of like going to an acid lake and casting a fishing pole into it and trying to find fish. Everything in there is dead. There is no hope to be found. You can reel it in and reel it in and reel it in. You'll never find anything there. But I want to show you what the book of Hebrews teaches us about hope. Chapter 6, verse 19, describes Jesus as our sure and steady anchor. It says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, let me explain what he is saying here. Imagine that the world has been turned on its side, that the temple has been laid down. It is like you are on the outskirts. You cannot enter in, but at the very base, there at the bottom, that is where the presence of God is. That is the Holy of Holies. You cannot enter in behind that curtain, but it says Christ, like an anchor, was dropped down and is settled there in the presence of God, connecting you forever and unbreakably to the presence of God himself. He has caused you to be connected to the Lord without ever fearing that he will be removed or changed. He cannot be dislodged from his place at the throne. Our hope is rooted in the fact that God is present with us right now because of the work of his son. God is tied to us through this union we have with Christ. The second foundation of hope that we see in this chapter is that God will reward his people. Verse 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Repetition here is significant. Whenever the Bible repeats something, it's trying to emphasize it. And here it's telling you, you think you've had good stuff to eat before. You've never had anything like this. What is a feast? Why do we feast? We live in a world where We can get almost any food any time that we want. We have a variety of food on our table from day to day. The meal plan at your house looks much different than it did during the time of Isaiah. Most people in the world today and the overwhelming majority of people throughout all of history did not have the options that we have when it comes to food. Their meals were generally bland. They were simple. Their meal plan was repetitive. And that's just to say the least. Anyone living at the time of Isaiah would look at your dinner table no matter how meager you think it is, and they would assume that you are having a feast. 
But a feast was a celebration. It was a time where they would get together and they would kill the fatted calf. They would take all these animals that they had been saving for a special occasion. They would slaughter them and they would produce the food. They would make all sorts of their best. They would bring out of the storehouses the things they had preserved for months or years. And they would bring it out to rejoice and celebrate that something important has happened. Maybe somebody has gotten married. Typically, they would do a, a massive feast when somebody has returned from battle victorious. They would come together and they would throw a feast and say, thank you for conquering those enemies on behalf of our kingdom. But that's not what's happening here. It's not, it's not the people throwing a feast for the one who's being celebrated. We're not throwing a feast for them. He is throwing a feast for us. Consider that the hero, the victor, the champion, the king, he is the one not being served here, but serving. He is desirous to give good gifts to his children. He is setting a table for us with the choicest foods. He desires to shower us with good things. Psalm 23 gives us this picture of the good shepherd setting a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Consider Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. You know the story. Jesus is speaking to a centurion, and the centurion has a servant who needs to be healed. And the centurion says, listen, you don't have to follow me to my house. Just say the word. Look, I'm a man who's under authority. I get it. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marvels at his faith. He, he says the word, and the servant that very moment was healed. And then he turns, and Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, he says, I tell you the truth. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Look, people are going to come out of every nation of the world. People are going to come from all over this planet, and they're going to come worship together with the patriarchs. The imagery of a feast does not end, though, in verse 6. God will also be consuming something. We will have great gifts to consume, but he says he will also have a meal. Verses 7 and 8, and he, God, will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Death. Death is a vicious, unquenchable beast. It takes and it takes and it is unsatisfied. The Lord was kind to only allow us to ever have one thought in our mind at a time. He was kind to do that for us, to limit us in that way, because if he didn't, we would be focused on death at all moments of our lives. If you have ever lost a loved one that you cared for dearly, then you know the pain that accompanies every thought of them. You know that every single memory is now filtered through the pain of loss. That great care that you had for them, now every time you think of them, you realize, I can't be near them. I can't be with them. I can't communicate to them. I can't share my life with them. And you feel, even though you have fond memories of them, you feel the pain associated with that. But the Lord promises to make a meal of death and to consume it forever, never to be felt again. And in doing so, the curse that has covered all of creation like a veil over a bride's face is going to be removed. And God himself says he will comfort his people. A few years ago, I was at youth camp, um, and I had just walked out of a long, drawn-out, disciplinary conversation where there was a troublesome student that we were trying to get back on track, and I was tired of serious conversations. I was tired of this frustrating moment, and I wanted to go out and just have a nice, relaxing, fun conversation. 
So I saw some leaders and a student sitting around a picnic table, and I made my way in their direction, and I sat on the end and made myself comfortable. And as I looked to my left, I see this young camper put her head onto the table and begin to bawl her eyes out, crying very loudly. Of course, it was about a boy. I have to tell you, I did not care. I didn't care even a little bit. And immediately, what came into my mind was, how can I get out of this? Um, I immediately began wondering, would it be just too rude if I just stood up and left right now? And then I looked around the table and I see that the other four leaders are staring right at me as if I'm the one now responsible for consoling this young lady. And I don't want to do it. But I was kind. I said, you know what? This is important. And I, I talked to her for a few minutes and I s eventually passed her on and said, you need to just call your mom and talk to her and she'll help you out. Honestly, part of that was because I wanted to be done. I will be honest, my heart was very hard. I did not want to have this conversation. I did not desire to comfort her or console her. I knew that this situation really was such a small thing that a boy didn't return her look. I don't care. But what does the Bible say that the Lord is like? He is kind. It says that he will come to us and he will comfort us. He will come and wipe away every tear. He will hear the pain of your heart and he will respond with mercy and heal you with his grace. And he will take away all of those sorrows. All of that anguish will be wiped away with your tears. This is our God, the one that we will rejoice in. Consider what it says now in verse 9. It says, he, he shows us the response of those who have been re redeemed, those who have had their tears wiped away. It says, it will be on that day, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. One of the foundations of biblical hope is looking past all of the present darkness to the light that is coming at the end. Notice this hope is in this declaration. It says we have waited for him. Do you wait for the Lord? When you get that bad news from the doctor or when you hear that your relative got COVID or when you realize your job may no longer exist, is it in that moment, do you wait for him? Or in that moment, are you just filled with the fear and anxiety of the world around you? Are you setting your hope on what Christ has done and what Christ will do? Are you standing in the tension of what has already been accomplished and what is yet to come? What we are talking about when we are talking about hope is taking the finished work of Jesus at the cross and the coming work of Jesus at the return, and we are pulling them together now into the present and saying, I trust in you. I rely on you. I believe in you, and I hope in you. My hope will not be shattered. Now, I think that honestly, we have the tendency in our camp, the Reformed Baptistic camp, to avoid talking about the rewards that the Lord gives his people. And we do that because of a lot of the abuses that have come from other uh, portions of the church in America in particular, where the focus has moved directly to the rewards, to the gifts, to the good things that God can give you, and has removed the attention from God himself. Jesus is not just an avenue to greater things. Jesus is the great thing. And we need to understand that. But in that, we see that God has also promised to give us great reward. And there's nothing wrong with knowing that and believing that. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, shows us that Moses hoped in the Lord. It says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He had hope in what was to come, that the Lord would reward him. 
Now, I'm not saying that we do things for the gift. I am saying that the reward is Christ himself. Being present with him forever is the greatest reward. And so as we consider this and set our affections on him, then as we look at the current circumstances, as we are tempted to do one thing or the other, we know that we can set our hope on the fact that following after Christ is worth it every time. If you set your eyes on the reward that lies ahead of you, it motivates you to press on towards the goal of the upward call of Christ, as Paul explains it in Philippians chapter 1. Our third and final point this morning is that God will vindicate his people. We have seen that God will be present with us and that he will reward us, but he will also vindicate us. And what do I mean by that? Vindication means that he is going to show that we are right and that the world that seems like they get everything, they are wrong. The remainder of chapter 25 reads, For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place. Now remember back to chapters 15 and 16, we talked about this briefly last week. Moab was symbolically this man of pride. So when he's talking about this, he is symbolically referencing an individual as the type of people who are arrogant in spirit against the Lord. He says such people will be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down on a dunghill, and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. Do you see the disgusting nature of what he's saying? He's saying, look, they think they're getting a lot of great rewards, but their reward is going to be in a wet sewer where they're going to be swimming around in that sewage. That is a disgusting imagery that is placed here in this text. And it says that he is going uh, to lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortification of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. He is using every possible way to explain, I am going to eliminate this man's pride. Those who are arrogant in spirit, who believe they are smarter than God, who don't believe they need to follow him, who ignore his word, God says to those people, there will be judgment. Never forget that the enemies of God's people are ultimately just the enemies of God himself, and he will not let their attacks go unpunished. We won't actually be digging too deep into chapter 27, but I do want to show you one thing. This deals mostly with the judgment of God's enemies, but I want you to see how it begins. It says in verse 1, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, the Leviathan is a reference to a, a sea creature of some sort. We see this particularly here in Isaiah and also in the book of Job. I believe, however, in both places that this is not a reference just to a physical animal. I think he is using this to reference the devil himself. He is referencing Satan. And you see this similar language being quoted and referenced in the book of Revelation. For example, when he says the great dragon will come up from the sea. Same type of language. The word sea or ocean in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, always speaks about sin and uncertainty and evil. And here what comes up from it, the great power that rules over it, is, I believe, speaking of the devil himself. And the point of all of this that I am getting at is that God will vindicate his people by condemning and judging his enemies from the greatest, like the devil, to the very least. He is going to be the one who comes against those who have attacked and opposed his church. They can't hold a candle against the strength of the Lord. He is mighty in battle. The book of Revelation chapter 6 tells us that people are going to be so aware of the wrath of God over them that they will call out for the rocks to crush them. They desire to be 
to be laid low under the mountains because it would be better than having the wrath of God pour out against them. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So how does this give us hope? Because every time that you are in a situation where you feel like you are the only one following Christ and everyone else is God's enemy, everyone else is trying to cause you to follow their way, the world's way, you can look at them and just like Asaph in Psalm 73, you can discern their end. You can see that their foot is set in a slippery place. You can see that this path is not worth traveling. You can see that I have hope that walking this way will result in me being with the Lord forever. And I will not be the enemy of God. I hear a phrase used often these days, they deserve justice. We have to have this happen because this individual or this group of people deserves justice. It's most often used in reference to those who have been killed, murdered in cold blood. Parents of deceased children sue in order to get justice. People protest for others to get justice. Witnesses come forward to, at the trial of a murderer so that the, punished, uh, the person will be punished and the victim will get justice. Now, not to be blunt, but the victims are dead. How can they get justice? That person can't get his life back. Now, listen to me carefully. I am not saying that any of the previous responses are wrong. I'm just saying they're limited. I'm just saying they can't produce the ultimate result of justice. They can give us something. They can give us punishment for the wicked, a temporary, small, minuscule punishment at best. But what they cannot do is give true justice. God alone can do that. And he will do that. And we can have hope knowing that God will even out the scales of justice in heaven and in hell. Our hope is in the Lord. And we can be sure that he will surely just, uh, justify and judge the enemies of his people. Now, jump down to verse 13 and verse 27, if, or chapter 27, if you're still there. It says, In that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. Those who worship have been called out of the darkness of this world and are being drawn to the throne of his grace. Final story. Remember Abraham? Do you remember how the Lord made him a promise that you're going to be the father of, of many nations? That you're going to produce offspring that outnumber the grains of sand on the shore or the stars in the sky? He said, you're going to have so many children. Well, the Bible also tells us that he was an old man. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that he was as good as dead. He was an old man, incapable of having children. But we see that he had hope in the Lord. Romans 4, 18 says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He had hope in the Lord because God's promise was greater than all of the evidence. Consider what John Calvin writes about this very passage. He says, Paul uses the word hope twice in this verse. In the first instance, he means a probable evidence for hoping, such as can be derived from nature and carnal reason. In the second, he refers to faith given by God. So in the first instance, hope, he is talking about it in terms of how we have hope in this world. Well, I really hope that the Lord gives me this child. And he says, but he had a greater hope. He had a true hope, a settled hope. For when he had no ground for hoping, yet in hope he relied on the promise of God, and he thought it's a sufficient reason for hoping that the Lord God had promised, however incredible the thing was in itself. Later on, Calvin adds, doubtless there is nothing more injurious to faith 
than to fasten our minds to our eyes that we may, from what we see, seek a reason for our hope. If your hope is tied to your vision, then you have no reason for hope. But listen, we do not walk by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. Are your eyes fixed on the temporal or on the eternal? Are you fishing for hope that you will never catch? Or is your hope anchored to the throne of grace by Christ? Next time you are furious at the news, next time you are heartbroken over your friend's suffering, next time you are baffled by the depravity of your neighbors, seek and find your hope in Jesus. Our hope is settled because God is with us, because God will reward us, and because God will vindicate us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son, who has come to die for us and who is with us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to hope in you. And when hope seems to have left us, Lord, I pray that you would set, help us to set our minds on you rightly so that our hope might be returned. When we have hopelessly lost the way, Lord, I pray that you would give us hope. Lord, for those who are discouraged in this room, those who are looking around the world and who are saying that there is nothing good, Lord, I pray that you would cause them to see Christ and have hope. And Lord, for those who are currently hopeless because they were, are without God in this world, Lord, I pray that you would cause them to see your son and repent and believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.